I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Welcome to the Ranch Investor Podcast. We have Mark Wingerski with Scout. Scout Energy, Mark? Scout Clean Energy. Scout Clean Energy, a caveat there. Okay. There you go. Well, thanks for coming on, Mark. We're going to be talking about all things solar and wind. Is there are there any other clean energies that ranchers and landowners need to be aware of? Well, wind and solar are the two big ones, but another uh, buzzword you'll hear a lot of these days is also battery storage. So you're really looking at wind, solar, and then where, where you can also cite battery uh, battery storage with those projects. Now, battery storage, is that where you pump water up to a higher elevation? And then when you when you drain it, release it, you're generating energy and you kind of keep cycling water for for peak demand on the grid? No, to- totally different. So these are your big lithium batteries that you're ultimately charging. And then when the wind resource is coming off, the solar resource is coming off, you're dispatching that those electrons onto the grid. So you know, we're, we're talking about big battery packs here. So rather than like 300 head of Black Angus out on my pasture, I could have like 300 units of lithium batteries. Well, you might have 30 Konex trailers full of batteries out there, you know, uh, uh, supplying the grid with some additional electrons. Okay. What, uh, what, is, what is that method of uh, energy storage and generation that I just made up talking about pumping water to a higher point? Well, that just sounds like, you know, some of your hydro opportunities. So, you know, drop dropping your water ultimately through a turbine uh, to generate electricity that way. So well, tell me about Scout. How long have you been in business? How big are you? Uh, what, what does Scout look for? Where are you at? Uh, tell me about this, about this uh, market you're playing in, but introduce Scout for me. Absolutely, Coulter. So Scout Clean Energy, we're based out of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, We've been around since 2016, but we have a lot of industry veterans here in the shop with, you know, 20, 30 years of experience. And, you know, Scout, right now we are operating about 1.2 gigawatts of wind. Um, So that's, you know, quite a few uh, wind turbines we're looking after on a day-to-day basis. In our pipeline, we have 22 uh, gigawatts of renewable projects ultimately in our pipeline, and that's across 24 states. So we, we have a big presence here in the United States. And late stage development, we have a little, little more than two gigs of uh, projects in late stage development. So uh, ourselves as a company, we're looking at wind, we're looking at solar, and we're doing some battery storage as well. And that is all the way from California right now to uh, Pennsylvania and a lot of points in between. We got projects going. Now, 22 gigawatts is what you currently have producing. No, that, that's in our pipeline. So that, that's in our pipeline for uh, future future development, uh, ultimately get those projects into you know construction and, and operations as well. Currently, we're operating about 1.2 gigs of, uh, of wind. So. How many how many turbines is that? 
Oh, <laughs> that, that, that's a good question. So we've uh, some smaller, older projects out in California. Those are those are smaller turbines from the big ones you see today. Oh, just ballparking it. I'd have to ask our ops folks for an exact number, but we're we're probably a little about 150, maybe a little north of 150 individual wind turbines. Okay, 150 units, and it sounds like the units are getting bigger more efficient there's there's a technology obsolescence technological obsolescence is um there's some improvements what's happening with the turbine the units themselves yeah that that's that's absolutely right so it what you're seeing with these turbines is they're ultimately getting bigger and also more efficient so you know, probably back about 2008, 2009, the average size of wind turbine was about 1.5 megawatts. Now the average size is approaching right about three megawatts. So you've just about seen a double in the size of that wind turbine. And that's that gearbox, right? That is the motor of the turbine has gotten bigger. So, you know, the motor of the turbine has gotten bigger. You, we've also seen improvements in blade technology as well on the blades being able to capture, you know, more wind and operate more, more efficiently. So, you know, we, we've seen these turbines, you know, the size of the motor, the size of the blades, the you know, towers getting taller as well. So you can get a little higher, grab a little more wind. How about, so these, these motors, these generators, <clears throat> what is the... What is the uh, mechanical depreciation on those or technological obsolescence? How long do you expect a unit to last before you have to replace it? Yeah, so if you're treating these machines right, so you're changing gearbox oil, you're flushing you know, hydraulic fluid, you're siting these turbines in the right locations for the right technology, you should be able to get probably about 15, 20 years out of, you know, one of these wind turbines. So, you know, when you look at, you know, taking a wind lease, your wind leases, you'll want the operation term to be 30 to 40 years. And what that allows you as a developer to do is you run that first generation of technology to obsolescence, and then you replace it with the new state-of-the-art technology, you know, 16, 20 years down the road from now. Okay. So with these with these projects having to be renovated, kind of like commercial real estate, you, you just plan that after 25 years, you're going to have to renovate the, the office building to meet the needs of modern times. Um, are you guys bonded for remediation or, or is this just going to be a super fun site when, when you walk away? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, Culture, and that, that's a concern a lot of whether landowners or local elected officials or public utility commissioners have of these projects. So, you know, in our wind leases, we actually have a whole reclamation removal uh, procedure that's actually spelled out in our wind leases. So contractually, what we're going to do uh, to remove the project so different locations with, you know, whether it's your county commissioners or your board of supervisors, for you to get your permit locally, if there is a local permitting regime, they might require you to actually pay, place a reclamation removal bond. And they might say, hey, you, got, you need to place that in year, you know, 10 or year 15 for ultimately the um, removal costs of your facilities. Other states at the state level will require you to post security to remove your wind turbine. So, for example, in the state of South Dakota, the Public Utility Commission requires you to escrow 
$5,000 per year per turbine into a separate escrow fund to ultimately take down the project at, at the end of its useful life. Now, this, is, this might be too technical and too detailed, but I'm just, I have to ask, because I'm curious, uh, given where interest rates are at today, do you, do you get uh, interest income on that escrow account? You know, that, that, that's a good question. <laughs> so that we actually have a South Dakota project. We'll be ramping up into full construction here in May of this year, 23. We'll go into uh, commercial operations in October. And at that point, we're going to have to start paying into that escrow account. I, I, I would have to ask the fine folks in Pierre whether that account uh, yields any interest or not. So I imagine it does, but I'd, I'd have to get confirmation. So I sure as hell would want my interest <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It, it could it could be some good mailbox money at the rate things are going. So, for sure. And, and you use the word regime when you're dealing with the government. I thought that was a very appropriate word. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, another question dealing with local government governments: uh, who pays the property taxes on these? Yeah, so we do. So the way our leases are structured is. We pay any increase in property taxes. So if that assessor comes out and, you know, you switch your assessment value from ag to, you know, commercial on, say, your operation and maintenance building, you know, we pay that increase in the tax rate uh, attributed to any facilities we install. That's that's all on us. We, we pay those taxes. Okay. What are you what are you looking for right now? What's hot? Is it solar panels? Is it the newer generation of uh, turbines? Is it uh, battery storage? What uh, what what's what is out there that you're looking for? Gosh, right right now the whole industry is hot. So I mean that is, those are your wind projects, your solar projects, battery storage. I mean, as they say, the business is uh, blowing and going right now. It's this boom time uh, in in the renewable space. So uh, I mean, all those projects, if you have the right project, right economics, right location, um, those projects are really valuable and really highly sought after. Well, if it's booming, won't it bust at some point? Well, you know, that, that that's a good question. And, you know, this industry, we've seen a lot of ups and downs and mainly the ups and downs were attributed to, you know, the production tax credit not getting renewed for, say, a year or two. And you saw the, you know, the business, you know, fall off. But, you know, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's really created a lot of additional certainty on the economics of these projects going forward, you know, over the next decade and beyond. So. So this this is being driven by a bill, government spending to to subsidize wind energy or to how 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 is how is a act of Congress uh, creating a a booming industry for you? I don't understand that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer that in, you know, two parts. So, you know, I'll, I'm going to answer the first, you know, demand part for renewable energy first. And then they call it the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'll answer that in the second part. So a big driver for the demand of renewables right now are corporations. You know, these are corporations and these are, you know, your Walmart, your Amazon, your, you know, Facebook, now Meta, the world, your Fords. You know, these corporations that have these sustainability goals and they say, hey, we want to be powered by renewable energy by 
pick the magic year. It could be 2030, 2040, right? So you have a lot of these corporations out there shopping renewable power. So those corporations are really, you know, driving, you know, the base demand for these projects to move forward and also utilities. So we also are seeing these utilities that are saying, hey, you know, we might have, a, you know, mixed generation and it's right now made up of, you know, 40 percent coal. And we want to bring that number down and ultimately, you know, backfill it with renewables. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of demand out of these corporations, a lot of demand out of the utilities. So what occurred with the um, Inflation Reduction Act is, you know, ultimately there are, you know, tax incentives and credits uh, for building these renewable energy projects. A very um, Pro-American, American-made aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act is domestic content. So you are actually picking up tax benefit by buying American-made. So, you know, th that is buying solar panels, you know, uh, made here in the United States. That could be a tower component on a wind turbine, a generator on a wind turbine. So a big part of that Inflation Reduction Act is the domestic content rules where you end up with additional tax benefit for, for buying American. So what I... I I think we're going to see here, and we've already seen some, uh, you know, press releases on it is, you know, the solar panel manufacturers that, you know, are doing an $800 million expansion to their Toledo plant out there in Ohio and, you know, looking at uh, opening up another plant in the southeastern portion of the United States. So I, I think, you know, one of the um, additional outcomes of the Inflation Reduction Act is you're going to see a lot more domestic manufacturing of these renewable, renewable you know, products, whether, you know, it's your solar panels, your trackers, your tower components, your blades, and, you know, getting, getting that stuff made here. So when you build a project, you, you can capture that additional tax credit. Okay. So I, I think some of your uh, motors and blades used to come from Germany quite a bit now, right? So now is, is manufacturing being moved to the U.S. in that area as well? Yeah, absolutely. So an example I'll use, and, you know, here in Colorado, not not too far away from Boulder is, you know, Vestas, uh, they previously did a lot of manufacturing internationally. They ship everything into these wind farms that were getting built. Well, I mean, they've opened a blade plant, you know, uh, north of Denver, outside of Fort Morgan. They've got a tower uh, plant, uh, you know, outside of Pueblo as well. So, you know, they moved a lot of that manufacturing here uh, domestically. And then, you know, if you're flying to Sioux Falls and you're you're driving east, uh, there's a big, you know, tower manufacturing plant, you know, just on the Minnesota side of the state line as well. So you're, you're seeing a lot of um, those components getting made here in the U.S. when 10 years ago, they, they just weren't, so. So in my experience, it's been, it's been all oh, seven years of new projects coming online and, and pretend, let's say big money coming into the space. And anytime, anytime there's potentially easy government money, there's going to be a lot of new entrepreneurs, right? And so it seemed like early on, uh, people were out, scouting, uh, looking for land to lease around huge transmission lines that used to serve coal generation plants. Uh, where, where is the land man at today? I'm, I'm guessing all those opportunities have been leased up. They've been taken. Uh, probably your highest yielding areas of wind, capturing wind, those have been leased up or developed. I mean, where where's that at today for feasibility um 
what are you what are you looking for out of landowners? Because I imagine not every every parcel of acre in the U.S. would qualify for wind generation. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Coulter. So you, you want to get your project sited in, in the right location. So where are the right locations? And, you know, you brought up a good point, which was a lot of developers were chasing the big power lines, right? You want to be in proximity to the big power lines because when we look at the coal fire fleet here in the United States, the majority of the coal fire plants were built in the 1950s and 1960s. And a lot of those coal fire plants were only designed to run 30, 40 years. So, you know, there's a lot of coal fire out there that's, you know, 20 plus years past the end of their life expectancy. And they're still limping along and they're getting retired by a lot of these utilities. So as they get retired, you open up room and space on the wires and you can bring in new generation. So, you know, we're still seeing a lot of retirements happen, whether that's coal fire generation or natural gas fire generation, opening up space on those wires. So generally, you, you want to be near your big transmission lines. I mean, you can have an awesome wind resource in the upper Great Plains, but heck, you might be 200 miles from the nearest transmission line and you just can't ultimately get your power to the grid. So you, you want to be close to the transmission line. You want to have the availability on those lines. and there are a whole lot of other, you know, aspects that have to come together and get a project to succeed. So uh, you got to have the right existing land use, you know, that's complementary to wind or solar. You got to have a site that's clean from an environmental perspective. You got to have a group of landowners that are willing and able. They they want to participate in the property. They want to make the mailbox money, and you know they support the project. And you got to also have that you know local and state permitting regime that you know can get you get you a permit when you need it, um, so you can get your project built. So I okay, I do want to talk about the kind of the specifics of a wind lease because you know I have that listing, had that listing in eastern Colorado of. 14,000 acres, almost 12,500 of which were under a lease, a three-year option with your competitor, Orsted. And I believe it is Orsted's largest North American project and potentially the largest land-based project they have in the world. But we never were sure what the likelihood of that option was I mean it paid well so it paid five dollars an acre the first year six the second year seven the third year and then twenty five dollars an acre guaranteed if the project goes through with the upside potential being revenue share and that's that's about the only time you'd enjoy living in a windy area is when you're getting revenue share off that wind generation. And so I'm curious because I had so many questions between my sellers, buyers, neighbors, other brokers. What is the feasibility study process and, and how do you know a likelihood of, of these projects going through when you enter into a lease agreement? Yeah, so first off is ultimately knowing who you're doing business with. So that would be the first question I would ask. So who are you doing business with? There are a lot of you know, shops out there that are just flip shops. So they just try and get a bunch of land lease stuff and they try and flip it to someone else and you know get the project to move forward that way. There are other shops like us 
I mean, we are a soup to nut shop. So, I mean, we develop the projects, we build them, we operate them through their life. And, you know, we're in it for the long term. So when we look at probability of success, first, I would encourage folks to know who you're doing business with, understand what their business model is, and make sure it's someone you want to work with, someone you get along with. So it's someone, you know, when you have a question and you call, they pick up the phone and they're willing to, you know, provide you with, with an answer versus, you know, someone that's just going to be, you know, radio silent. So, um, yeah, knowing who you're doing business with is really important. Um, the next piece is that company is probably going to hand you, you know, their wind lease, their solar lease. Find good legal counsel. So find good legal counsel that has reviewed these leases before and know what you're getting yourself into. Because one of these wind leases, I mean, it's going to be a 30 to 40 page contract. So, you know, get, get you an attorney that is uh, and has had success reviewing leases for landowners and um, make sure you you dot your I's and cross your T's and legally know what you're getting yourself into. So, you know, that that's, that's you know, two of the first uh, recommendations I, I would give folks. So then do they come out and do they set up little little spinner things and they test the wind and they over the three years, they have an idea of how much energy they're going to be able to farm, how much wind they're going to be able to farm and yield energy yield. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Dealing with a lot of landowners, you'll go and you'll say, hey, I want to lease the ranch. Ranch might be a couple thousand acres. And, you know, that landowner, that rancher says, well, come back when you really got a project. Come back when you really got a project and then we'll think about it. And, the, you know, as the saying goes, is it all comes back to the land. So in order to start the process on determining whether a project is feasible, you got to get that big block of land signed up. You got to have that contiguous acreage. So once you get the lease assigned, what it allows you to do is it allows you to kick off your wind measurement campaign. So just as you're saying, uh, Coulter, we'll put up these test towers to ultimately uh, see what the wind's doing. Is it windy enough to have a viable wind farm out there? We're going to kick off environmental studies, right? So we're going to make sure there isn't something threatened or endangered out there that you know is going to prevent us from building the projects. The other thing that you got to do now is when you file your interconnection agreement to get on that big high line, you got to be able to provide proof of site control. So you got to be able to provide your, you know, memorandums of wind lease that are, you know, recorded down there in the local courthouse. You got to turn those into um, the utility so you can start the interconnection process. So it all comes back to the land, you know, getting get that big contiguous block. Uh, you know, locked locked up so that way you can start your wind measurement, do your enviro studies, you know, start the interconnection process and, you know, get, get the project rolling. Because of uh, economies of scale, you're probably not looking at $10 million projects. I'm guessing that you large developers, your minimum threshold is a billion dollar project? Yeah, a lot of these are, are lower than that. So when you look at say uh, average commercial size wind farm, you know, call it, you know, 200 megawatts, you're probably looking at about a 300 million-ish dollar project. So not, not in the billions, you're looking at, you know, still a heck of a lot of money. You're talking in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for, to get one of these out of the ground. So if someone's listening to you right now as they're driving by uh, a turbine on some flat prairie in Kansas, or Oklahoma, or uh, Panhandle of Texas, and they're looking to their right, and they see one spinning, 
and they want to do some mental math or they want to take the balance sheet of their neighbor, on average, how much does a landowner make per turbine? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, you know, it, it all comes back to money. And, you know, the two most commonly asked questions I get is, how's it going to impact the farm or how's it going to impact the ranch and how much money am I going to make? So th- those are the two most uh, common questions. So, you know, lease rates vary depending on where you are, you know, in the United States, but just a few walking around numbers for you. The guaranteed minimum payment on one of those wind turbines, and that's guaranteed whether those blades are spinning or not, in today's market is probably going to be between $10,000 and $15,000. And that is a guaranteed minimum payment whether you know the blades are, are spinning or not. And very similar to oil and gas, what we'll do is we'll actually have a royalty built into our lease. So we have that guaranteed minimum that we'll pay. We have that royalty, which is your proportion of the amount of money uh, that the project's getting for selling power. So, you know, you had old, you know, eight oil and gas lease, um, a wind lease, you know, it might be 3%, 5%, whatever that number is. So you hope the price of the power exceeds your minimum payment. So that way you're, you're getting your royalty check as well. But uh, we never want our landowners, you know, to be out any lost revenue, figure that one turbine is going to take up a half an acre, acre property. They can be guaranteed whether the blazer spending or not, 10 to $15,000 for losing that acre out of production. And then we're going to, you know, hopefully beat it on the back end with that royalty as well. So. Yeah, that pays very well. Is there any, is there any possibility that, solar will get to a point where you can graze underneath of it because currently don't you pretty much just you follow the field there's no secondary use of of uh the pasture land with solar is will there be in the future well full, full disclosure uh we scout we're members of the american solar grazing association Okay. So, I did well, not know there was an American Solar Grazing Association. There, there's an amazing. There is an American Solar Grazing Association. Their their website is it, a trove of awesome information. So, when you look at solar, and the way I explain this is, there is an agricultural conversion on the land use, right? So you're taking that cornfield, you're taking that bean field, you're ultimately going to plant it to grass, you're going to build your solar project, and then what you can do is you can use those sheep. For your grass management. So as opposed to having to mow it, you know, having to spray it, you can actually use your sheep for your grass management if it's in the right place and you got someone, you know, running sheep, you know, locally and nearby. It's a it's a great solution for the project. So, you know, a solar project, you're going, you know, you can take the property, convert, you know, corn to beans to grass. And then you're going to ultimately install your trackers, you know, you're going to install your panels. And underneath those panels, you, you, you can have that species grazing. And around those panels, you're going to have a security fence. And then between the security fence and the property line, you have additional open space. So what we look at doing at that strip between the security fence and the property line is also planting a pollinator-friendly species. So when we look at you know those farms that don't have panels on them, uh, you can plant a pollinator friendly species, you're helping out the other farms or grazing sheep, you know, within that uh, security fence. And you just, you know, converted the egg use ultimately from corn beans to grass and you got sheep on there. So it's keeping the agricultural intent of the farm as well. Are those 
are those pretty wild conventions the the industry events for the american solar panel grazing association do those get do those conventions get pretty wild it sounds like a very small <laughs> yeah it's it's i will say it's a, it's a niche business right now but um it, it it's a great solution uh you know in order to minimize your mowing costs and uh your labor costs is, is to use those sheep so well i could i could see um uh stockman someone who's doing a lease operation with sheep wanting to bounce around between you know 10 different solar sites with their with their livestock is yeah uh, is is that something you'd be looking for do you take care of that uh sheep grazing lease yeah, so what we'll do is, you know, we'll just enter into a grazing contract ultimately, you know, um, with, with that farmer. So that way and we can estimate, you know, working, you know, working with that farmer, how many head of sheep we're going to need to ultimately graze it. We try and be strategic on how we lay the projects out as well. So you got to be able to get a stock trailer in and out. You're, you're going to have to be able to turn that gooseneck and get it through, you know, those um. Uh, panel arrays. So we try and be strategic on design. And then, you know, you might have put up some hot wire and, you know, do some rotational grazing, um, you know, amongst the panels. But I mean, that one farmer, he could be grazing our project. There could be a couple of other solar projects in the neighborhood and they might be uh, grazing those as well. So uh, it's 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 an up and coming business model. So it is. I, I could see someone wanting to call you and say, hey, do you have any do you have any panel pastures available that I could bid on? Exactly. And actually we have a project in Indiana and lo and behold, uh, you know, we, we have a landowner right in the middle of our project that, I mean, raises a lot of sheep and he approached us and said, Hey, I, I'm interested in doing this. I've approached a couple of other projects and uh, it's, it, it's a viable option. So. So you, you're in Indiana as well. What, um, what States are you focused on? A lot of the I states. I mean, the I states are really popular right now. So that's Iowa, Indiana, Illinois. I mean, that that area of the country is is really hot right now for renewables. And you're selling into a voluntary market, prim, primarily driven by voluntary consumer demand of of uh, renewable energy. Do you have to pre-sell the energy before you do a project? At, at, well, there are two different ways to sell power. So you can sell power under long-term contract, or you can sell it what's called merchant. So you're just selling into the spot price on the grid at that point in time. But what you want to do is you really want that long-term contract. You want that purchase power agreement because it, it gets your project to pencil, right? You know, what your returns are going to be because you know what the price of your power is going to be, you know, what your uh, escalator is going to be over the next 15 years to sell that power. So you really want that long-term contract to sell your power because it, it helps your project's economics out. I've heard through the grapevine that there's some $4 billion of projects in the in the pipeline for eastern Montana. Uh, doesn't sound like they're gonna go through because they have not had good bids on pre-selling their energy. What would be the reason behind that? Yeah, so you end up with some, you know, different regional differences, right? So you can have a project in eastern Montana, and depending on where the power is getting delivered on the grid, 
that project in eastern Montana, it could be competing against projects in South Dakota, South Dakota, North Dakota, um, and you know, the overall upper Great Plains. So, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, eastern Montana competing against eastern Montana to get those projects done. You might have a project that's competing against other projects in four other states. So um, that that's where things get competitive on, you know, who is the best wind speed, because the higher the wind speed, the more electricity you're going to generate, the more electricity you generate. You can probably offer a little discount on your price of power. And that's how some some projects will get out of the ground. Can can an area be too windy? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we have the Sweetland wind farm up in South Dakota, and that is and one of the strongest wind regimes in the United States. And we're using General Electric wind turbines up there and General Electric, they offer their wind turbines with two different tower heights. So they offer a lower tower height and a tower uh, and a taller tower height. It is so windy up there. We actually have to use the lower, a shorter tower because it's just simply too windy if we use the bigger ones where the machines might start to come apart on you. Okay. Well, Mark, what did I miss here? I was going through going through my list here. Um, you yeah. know, just, now just is, now is your turn for plugs and your turn for uh, getting getting me uh, updated on what you would like to present. Yeah, I mean, just if someone approaches you with the wind lease or solar lease, what I'll say there is. Look at the economics. So these wind leases, solar leases, they're a great way to diversify the income of the farm, of the ranch. So you, when you look at getting a project built and you know getting those guaranteed payments every year, uh, it's a great way to hedge against whether you got commodity prices increasing, you got corn increasing or fuel increasing. You know, figure on a wind farm that one wind turbine, including the access road, is only taking up about an acre of property. So, you know, you look at taking that acre of property out of production, but you're picking up $10,000 on that acre. You just diversified the revenue for the farm, for the ranch. On that one acre, you aren't having to buy seed or buy fertilizer, labor equipment, you know, to harvest. So you, you just, you know, diversified the, the revenue for the farm or the ranch. So, um, it, it, it's a great way to make some mailbox money. You'd probably be looking for leasing agents, wouldn't you? Boots on the ground, people with the contacts and connections. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it makes it a lot easier when we go into a new area, having someone that knows the lay of the land, you know, that, you know, can run by someone's house and say, hey, would you be interested in leasing? Yes or no. And, you know, if the answer is yes, to help, you know, progress those conversations. Well, well, given the way the real estate industry is going here, it might be time to, <laughs> to pivot from a real estate agent to, to leasing agent. So I, I would imagine you might have a lot more candidates knocking on your door to be your boots on the ground connectors. Hey, we're, we're, we're always looking for quality agents to go out and represent us and you know visit with these farmers and visit with these ranchers and see if we can't get something put together. So. What else, Mark? Do you have uh, any more plugs that you'd like to ask of my audience of uh, land professionals and landowners? Yeah, uh, nothing else really comes to mind. I mean, just again, make sure you know who you're going to be doing business with. 
have a good attorney help you, represent you. It's a long-term contract. So, you know, a uh, winter solar lease is generally divided into three parts. So you have a development term, and that's where the developer, they're trying to put the project together. You know, they're kicking off all the studies, seeing if they got something viable out there. And we're paying through the development term. And let's say the project doesn't work out. You know, that landowner, they keep those checks. They keep the money. We shake hands and we go our separate ways. But let's say the project ends up working out. We get it built. It usually takes a year or two to get one of these projects built. We flip over to the operation terms, and you got a good steady revenue stream over the next 30, 40 years. So um, it's it, it, it's it's a great way to you know help the farmer the ranch out. And do you get into transmission lines at all? You know, if we need to, we will build a transmission line from the project to get to where we can get the power on the grid. I had a you know project here in Colorado. We built a 74-mile transmission line to get the power out. Another one here in eastern Colorado, that transmission line was 105 miles. But on other projects, it might be five, six miles if we if we need to build one to get the power out. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on and hopefully this uh, this answers a lot of the questions that people were asking when they called on my listing. I'll just send them your episode, Mark. <laughs> there you go. Well, I appreciate your time, Coulter. If anyone needs to, if anyone has a project or something, should they reach out to Scout? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our website is a great way to reach us as well. That's scoutcleanenergy.com. So uh, all of our contact information is on the website as well. That's that's a great way to reach us. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the Ranch Investor Podcast. Colter, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.